G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. The Story Now, I'm a tough 20-year-old, and by then, it had been many, many years since I'd lost a fight. But here I am, lying on the floor. But the other thing that really amazed me was, I began to howl like a baby. And I'm lying on the floor, and I'm crying my heart out. And about every 10 or 15 seconds, there's a neon sign that flashes before my mind. It says, Michael, Jesus loves you. And every time I saw that sign, I just cried more and more and more. I had no power to resist Jesus' love at that point. G'day, I'm Jimmy Colfax. Welcome to The Story. Well, Michael Rafferty's life started off pretty rough. He grew up in an orphanage where he quickly learned to never let anyone see him cry. And he did get into many fights. So he certainly was the last person you would ever have picked to become a pastor. However, when God's love eventually broke through, it radically changed the direction of his life. Michael Rafferty is having a chat and sharing his story with Shelley Scowen. Michael, tell us about your childhood. You were born in 1943 during the war. That ended up having quite a significant impact on you, didn't it? It did, yes. Because, um, as you say, I was born in 43, and my mother uh, gave birth to my sister uh, three years later. She died at birth. Dad uh, had died uh, because of the war, somewhere along the line there. And uh, so my sister was adopted out. Uh, by my mother's sister, and I was put in an orphanage. And so um, I spent, till I was nine years of age, in Nazareth House in Aberdeen, Scotland. And then from there I was uh, given an opportunity to come out to Australia and came to Boystown, Bindoon, Western Australia. Life in the orphanage in Scotland wasn't all rainbows and sunshine, was it? The only memories I have of life in Scotland was the, how cold it was, you know, because we, we had a pair of khaki shorts and a short sleeve singlet. That was all we wore, no shoes, no socks, and the place was all the time it was cold. So that's my only memory <laughs> of the things that happened back in Scotland. And it literally was the promise of the sun shining that made you get on the boat um, when you were about 11 years old to come to Australia? Exactly. One, one morning at breakfast at Nazareth House, uh, they had a Christian brother come from uh, Boystown, West Australia, and he told this wonderful story about... Uh, been doing in Western Australia how wonderful it was, how the sun shine all the time. And um, uh, after telling such a great story, he said, OK, who'd like to go to Australia? And I put my hand up and the next thing I know, I'm on a boat coming to Australia. <laughs> <laughs> so you came with a bunch of the other boys from there too, didn't you? Yes. At the time, there was about 12 of us that came out on that particular boat. But in the orphanage in Western Australia, the boys were from England, Scotland, Wales and Malta. Why did they come seeking you guys to come to Australia then? Really because after the war years, life was tough in Britain and tough for the kids in the orphanages. And here in Australia, they were just um, opening up the land, I guess, in, the, in that sense. And they were building orphanages. And I think if I recall, there was five or six of them in Western Australia. And they needed uh, the boys to come. And Bindoon had many thousands of acres of land. And so they were able to... Uh, teaching the building trades and also farming and 
uh, the schooling and all the rest of the stuff, you see. So it was a great place to come from that perspective. Mm, okay. It wasn't everything you hoped for, was it? There was 150 boys in the home at the time I was there, and life was tough. And I found out from a very early age, to survive in the orphanage, you had to be tough or you got walked on. And so I think I can honestly say that from when I was 11 years of age until I was a 20-year-old uh, when I was converted, I never once shed a tear because in the home, if you shed a tear, you were considered a weakling and all the other boys would pick on you and um, they just made life miserable for you. So I determined from the word go, I was going to be one of the tough ones and I just was an angry person. If I got into a fight, I would fight so that I would hurt the other person as much as I could so I would come out winning. Angry at people but angry at God as well because this place purported to be a Christian organisation. That was the thing, you see. I was angry at the Christian brothers because they represented God, you see. Yeah. And the crazy thing was we were treated very rough through the week and some of the brothers were very cruel and yet on Saturday night we were lined up and all of us were made to go to confession, you see. And so we'd go to confession, receive absolution and on Sunday morning we would have communion. But the whole process of being beaten and um, bullied and all that rough stuff went on again and again and again. And so I looked at the brothers as God's representative and thought, okay, if this is how God treats his children, I'm mad at God. And oftentimes I'm afraid I used to call God some pretty awful names. You then aged out of that system, I guess, didn't you, Michael? And you went off and you found a job. Yes. When I turned uh, 15... The brothers took me to Perth, uh, had a job for me, and then um, arranged a boarding house. So that was what my life outside the orphanage began. I would live in a boarding house, uh, go to work, come back to the boarding house, but I didn't know anybody, and that was part of my trouble. So I would begin to look for those that I could just get around with, and I unfortunately met up with the wrong ones, and life got very hectic in the sense that... uh, I would go out at night looking for trouble. And because I was so used to fighting in the orphanage, one of the things that I loved to do was to, uh, with my mates, go out looking for fights. And we did this night after night, and eventually things got out of control. And I got into one fight, too many, and some things happened which were not good. And so after 12 or 18 months of this, I decided I needed to get out of the city. And so I moved from Perth to a sheep station between Carnarvon and Onslow, and worked on that sheep station for 12 months. Okay. Uh, I believe you were servicing windmills at the time. Yes, that was my job on the on the sheep station. I would uh, yeah. go out and d- do these windmills because they often got these big cyclones through there that just blew them open. So uh, I would go and repair them. But I was by myself, and that was the thing I liked about it because I couldn't get into any trouble, and there was no one to fight with. So it really worked out pretty good for me. Things changed again then when you flew back to Perth just for a holiday and uh, you were there with your suitcase in hand looking for a boarding house and uh, a car came along. Yeah, I'd flown back to Perth for a holiday, got in a bus into the city and was looking for a boarding house, a place to stay. And this car pulled up beside me and uh, I recognised the car and in the car was my old foreman from the place that I worked when I left the orphanage. And he asked me what I was doing and I said, look, I'm looking for a place to stay. He said, why don't you come and stay with us? So I said, okay. He took me to his home, and uh, he was married, had a couple of kids, and I'd only been there for a couple of days when one night the the, the pastor came along, and I happened to be there. And so the pastor began to challenge me about uh, my belief in God. And I said, look, hang on, I'm I'm a Catholic. I said, uh, 
I'm 20 years old. I've been a Catholic all my life, and as far as I'm concerned, that's the way it's going to be. And so the pastor would say, but did you know that the Bible says this? And uh, I'd say, yes, but do you know the Catholics say this? And so this argument uh, and discussion went backwards and forwards for uh, quite some time. But I realized after about an hour and a half of this, I was getting in too deep. And so I said to them, I said, look, I've got to stop. I need to go outside and have a cigarette. And so I, I get outside, and I'm thinking to myself, how can I get out of this? How can I get out of this? Because <laughs> yes. uh, the pastor wasn't making it easy for me, you see, because every uh, argument I came up with, she countered with what the Bible said. And so uh, when I went back in, they continued this discussion. And uh, in the end, out of sheer frustration, I said to the pastor, I said, look, uh, you want me to accept Christ as my Savior? I said, I'm prepared to do it on one condition. I said, tonight, God has got to prove himself to me that he's real. I said, for 20 years, the Catholic Church has taught me this. And I said, you come along in a couple of hours and you undermine everything that I believed and tell me there's a different way to go to heaven. And by this time, I was, I was shaking on the inside because there were a lot of things that were wrong with the Catholic Church and my, and my experience with the orphanage. But I respected the fact that they uh, taught me about God. Mm. And uh, although they weren't the perfect examples, there was something in my heart that was there that I believe that had been planted there by God, and it wasn't much. It was just a small flicker. But now I'm talking to this pastor, and everything I believed is being wiped away because the, the pastor's now saying, no, there's a, an, the proper way to God is through his son, Jesus Christ, you see. And um, when, when you, you come out of the Catholic background, and it's, it's rosaries, it's Mary, it's the Mass, and all these uh, other things, Jesus, though he gets mentioned, he's certainly not the, the head of the list, but this pastor's now telling me that, no, Jesus is the way and the only way. And so that's why I said, look, you have me confused. I don't, I'm not sure what to believe about God anymore. If God is real, he's going to have to prove himself to me tonight. The pastor said, okay, uh, this is what we'll do. We'll lead you in a simple prayer, and then I will pray for you. So I said, okay, go ahead. And so the, uh, the pastor asked me, did I believe that Jesus Christ was the Son of God? I said, yes, all good Catholics believe that. I said, did I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for my sins? I said, well, hang on. I said, um, I believe that Jesus Christ died on the cross for the sins of humanity. I'm not necessarily thought he died on the cross for my sins. I said, but yes, I can accept that he died on the cross for my sins. And then the pastor said, will you now receive Jesus Christ into your heart as your own personal Savior? And I said, yes, I take Jesus as my own personal Savior. And the pastor said, that's it, now just let me pray for you. And I thought, oh, this woman's crazy. If that's all it takes to get to God, you know, nothing's going to change. Mm -hmm. And so she said, uh, come on, let's stand up and I'll pray for you. And there were three or four others there. And so I just stood there in the center of the lounge room. And when the pastor laid hands on me, I was slain in the spirit. This was an incredibly great surprise to me because one moment I'm standing on my feet there. The pastor lays hands on my head and I'm lying flat on my back on the lounge room floor. Now, I'm a tough 20-year-old, and by then, it had been many, many years since I'd lost the fight. But here I am, lying on the floor. But the other thing that really amazed me was, I began to howl like a baby. And I'm lying on the floor, and I'm crying my heart out. And about every 10 or 15 seconds, there's a neon sign that flashes before my mind. It says, Michael, Jesus loves you. And every time I saw that sign, I just cried more and more and more. I had no power to resist. Jesus' love at that point. It was his love that melted my heart, and I'm lying there crying like a baby, and in the end, after such a long time on the floor, they said to one another, look, he's never going to stop. We better pick him up and just put him in bed. <laughs> and literally, that's what they did. They picked me up, 
carried me to my bedroom and put me to bed. And I cried most of the night through, but this much I know. When I finally got out of that bed uh, the next morning and went into the kitchen, I knew I was a new person. I knew that I had literally been born again. And for the first time in my life, the weight of sin had been taken from me. The other thing was, you know, being without father and mother, um, to see that message, and I, I, and I have to tell you right now when you, I'm talking to you on the phone, I'm seeing that pink sign before me again, and there's still tears coming to my eyes. I have no way mm-hmm. to resist the love of God. Michael, Jesus loves you. That was all it said, and it just melted my heart. And even to this day, that same message melts my heart as I see it just flash before me now. And that was amazing because I'd never, ever experienced love in my life. And so I can honestly say the first person that ever loved me was Jesus Christ. You're listening to The Story. Today, Shelley Scowen is chatting with retired pastor Michael Rafferty, who's reflecting back on his amazing life journey. We just heard how God's love deeply touched his heart. Next, we'll find out why, after he begins attending Bible school, he got kicked out. All that and more when we return. If this program has highlighted something you'd like prayer for, we'd love to pray for you. Call 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's 1-800-772-936. It's a free call. Or text 0401-132-888. Hi, I'm Jimmy Colfax, and this is The Story. We're continuing with Shelley Scowen chatting with retired pastor Michael Rafferty, who's reflecting back on his amazing life journey. Before the break, we heard our God's love deeply touched his heart, even though he described himself as a thug and a bully. Now we'll hear how God began to work in his life. The time for my holiday came to an end, and so I flew back from Perth to Carnarvon, and an old DC-3. It pulled up the Carnarvon Airport, and I just waited for everybody else to get off, and then I'm walking down. I get on the little platform before I walk down the steps, and on those, that platform at the top of those steps, I heard the audible voice of God. It's the only time I've heard it, and it spoke so clearly, and it said, Michael, I want you for the ministry. So I walked down the steps. My boss was there with the Jeep to pick me up to take me back to the station. I said, John... I said, I've given you notice right now. God has just called me to the ministry. (laughs) Well, he just literally began to roll with laughter because he knew what a hooligan and what a a big thug and a bully I'd been up to that point of time. Yeah, yeah. And so uh, he is absolutely amazed. So I stayed on the station there for another three months, uh, worked there. Then I went back to Perth, went to a Bible college. And uh, because I was so young and raw at this Christian life, uh, I used to argue with the lecturers, <laughs> and uh, in the end, they, they, they spoke up and said, Michael, you're not ready for this. We can't keep you here. You're causing too much trouble. And so they kicked me out of the first Bible college I went to. <laughs> but that was okay because I was determined, okay, if I can't get trained for the ministry there, I'll get trained somewhere else. And then a year later, I went to the uh, Assembly of God Bible College in Queensland. It used to be at Graceville in Brisbane, and uh, did my training there. And then from there, I went into the ministry. 
Yeah, and so then you went on to uh, pastor in many different places around Australia and New Zealand. Yeah. Um, so you were in Wyala and then Adelaide, Geelong, and then you skipped across to New Zealand for a while. Yep. Um, back to Shepparton and then in Brisbane. You were there for about 20 years until your retirement. Yeah, came, came to uh, Brisbane, but first of all, I went to Strathpine of, uh, and was out there for seven years, and then from there came into Chermside and uh, was there for 20 years. They were, they were the final 20 years of my ministry. And so, um, all told, it was about 44 years of pastoral ministry that I had and enjoyed. Mm. Yeah, I'm sure it's um, a very fulfilling role, extremely demanding in every different way, physically, spiritually, mentally, uh, time-wise and everything. Being a pastor is hard, hard work, yeah. but extremely fulfilling as well. It is. And I, I found that the first few years were the most difficult because, uh, first of all, I'm still learning the, the, the Christian ropes myself. Yeah. And although I'd been wonderfully saved and uh, baptized in the Holy Spirit and uh, trained for ministry, I did find it hard. And um, because when people uh, were being difficult, I would get difficult with them. And I still had this, um, if you like, anger problem or difficulty in dealing with people mm. and so God had to continue to work with me and work with me and until uh, I remember it came so clearly I'd been in the ministry for about 10 years and it's a Saturday night and I'm up at praying I say Lord uh, you know I've had a bad week and these people in the church are giving me a hard time again Lord I feel like punching them in the nose <laughs> and and then I said, sorry, Lord, I shouldn't be like that. And I, I, I said this, that I'd said a hundred times before. I said, Lord, I'm sorry, uh, but it's my upbringing. I can't help it. I've been like that all my life. And again, I felt the Holy Spirit just speak to my heart gently and said, Michael, while you continue to hold on to the past, you can never be free to live in the present. And that was a revelation to me. And mm-hmm. I thought, I can't keep blaming the past for my behavior. Yeah. And so I asked God to do something in my heart to change me and to let, enable me to let go of all the hurts of the past so that they would no longer be with me. And it was about that time that the Lord showed me that he had literally broken this thing of anger over my life. Yeah, that's so good. And I guess there is a difference there between using the past as an excuse and just having things that you struggle with as well. I mean, pastors are people too. You you have your own struggles and um, things that God is challenging you with each day as well. Yeah. Yeah, and that's the thing. Uh, you know, I just wish the people in the church, looking back now, if I was able to give a lecture on it, I would say to the people in the church, hey, don't put your pastor up there on a pedestal. Yeah. Because you may not see it, but I can guarantee you, no matter how good they are and how great their ministry is, they're having personal struggles in one or two areas of their life that they're not prepared to share with you because it's too painful to them. Mm. And so remember, they're not, they're not the superheroes that you want to make them out to be. They're ordinary people just trying to fulfill God's uh, burden, God's passion, and God's call for their life. Exactly, exactly. And you also say that with a position of influence as well, in that you've been quite active in training pastors all around the world. Tell us about your international ministry over the years. Yes, well, um, it came it came about because I felt there came a time after about 12 years in, in pastoral ministry that God spoke to my heart. I used to have trouble getting my messages out and said, Lord, what am I supposed to be? There were those who said, Michael, you should be uh, evangelizing, not as, not as a pastor. And it had me confused. And so one night I determined I was going to pray, God, show me what I meant to be. And after a great time of struggling in prayer, I believe God spoke to my heart and said, Michael, I've called you to be a pastor teacher. 
And that settled it for me. And I thought, okay. And in fact, when I went to bed that night, I said, Lord, it's Saturday night. I said, I have to have two sermons for tomorrow. It's now three o'clock in the morning. I have nothing. If you want me to be a pastor and teacher, then wake, when I wake up in the morning at six o'clock, you're going to have to bring me the messages to me. And so when I got up at six the next morning, I opened my Bible, I had a cup of coffee, opened my Bible, and then I was absolutely amazed at how when I began to read, it was as though God took me into that passage of Scripture, and I could see it, I could live in it, and I thought, this is great. I know how to teach the Bible now. As God begins to show me by His Spirit, I can then begin to teach the people. And so that was how my teaching ministry began to grow. And so from there, uh, years later, I got opportunities, first of all, to go to Papua New Guinea to teach in the Bible college up there. And I used to love that. And the first year I went, I went with a certain fear and trepidation, thinking, oh, I'm not sure what I can give these guys. And uh, so, but I did my best. And then I went, when I went back the next year, I found that the students that had graduated came back from all parts of New Guinea to see me because they said, Pastor, we want another set of your notes because uh, we taught, took them and taught our people, and now we want more stuff to teach our people. And so I thought, okay, God can use me in these foreign areas. Yeah. And so I went there for over 10 years and really enjoyed my time there. I've been to Mauritius teaching the pastors over there. Uh, my, the latest area I've been going to is in India. And I just love it over there because um, when the pastors come together, I'm able to teach them and encourage them, uh, build them up in their faith. And, um, you know, I'm able to do this on, on several levels, really, because, one, I find that many of the pastors in India, certainly the areas I go to, uh, don't have computers and don't have access to the great study materials that we have. And so I can teach them and encourage them, and uh, that's part of what I do now. So I also go to the Philippines and take pastor seminars over there. And now that uh, even in retirement, uh, that's still part of the love that's in my heart, to go to these overseas places and uh, teach the pastors and encourage them in their ministry and following the call of God in their lives. How fulfilling to be able to be there and have that much of an impact on the pastors and then, of course, releasing them to go and have an impact in their local communities as well. Uh, all around the world, uh, there's PNG, there's Mauritius, there's India, there's Philippines. Uh, India is kind of significant for you as well because they awarded you an honorary doctorate. Yes, an honorary doctorate of divinity because um, when they had seen me and uh, going over there for so many years, uh, they came to interview me sometime and asked about my ministry and what had happened and so forth. And what they found out was some of the, the pastors that had come to my seminars had been so encouraged and inspired to go on that they were now building large churches because God was using them. And when the, the, the university, people from the university asked them, how come your ministry is successful and this person's ministry is not successful? And many of them were saying, Oh, we, we learned some of these things from Pastor Michael when he came from Australia. Mm-hmm. And so I didn't know that, of course. And, but obviously when they came, they received the material, they were taught, they were encouraged, they were prayed for, they were built up in their faith. And so they went back to their villages and, and, and the places where God had placed them. And God began to use them and bless them. And uh, many of them could trace it back to coming to one of my seminars where their, their road to success, if you like, in ministry, began to uh, go forward for them because uh, they had been encouraged by someone else who had been there and done those things. Mm, Wow, what an honor for you then to know the impact that your ministry ended up having. Yeah, that's that's why, you know, even though I'm now, I'm 71 and I no longer have the responsibility of pastoring a church, 
but I'm in retirement, but I find I can be as busy now as I ever was while pastoring because <laughs> there are just so many opportunities to go out and minister. Yeah. And uh, I just love to do it because it's a gift God's given me. And I think with all the years experience, I'm able to give in such a way that I can bless and encourage others also. Yeah, well, you've still got life and breath that God wants you working for Him and doing His will. Yeah, that's right. And I'm learning more and more that um, retirement is not a word that a Christian pastor can use. Hmm. Because no matter how old you get, God, uh, the Bible says that the gifts and the callings of God are without repentance. He never pulls them back. And so while they're still there, we have to go on using them wherever the opportunity arises. Uh, yeah. Michael, time has gotten the better of us, unfortunately, but uh, thank you so much for telling your story right from uh, growing up in an orphanage from the age of three right through to 44 years in the ministry for Christ and continuing on, as you say, probably busier now than ever. <laughs> yeah. uh, and can I finish with one statement? And it, go it, for it. When I look back on those 40 years uh, in ministry, now in retirement, I can honestly say that I can retire with no regrets. I think it was the best life ever, and it was the best because God called me to it, and because God called me to it, He equipped me and kept me all the way through it. And so now, as I look back, there are no regrets. I believe it's been a life well lived, and I'm so thankful to God for the opportunity that He gave me. Yes, you're so right there. The best thing that you can do in life is whatever God calls you to. For yeah. you, it was pastoral ministry. For someone else, it might be working on the windmills like what you used to do when you were 19. Do whatever God has called you to, and that is when your life will be fulfilling. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Thanks so much for your encouragement and insight today, Michael. Appreciate your time. That was Shelley Scowen chatting with retired pastor Michael Rafferty, who, as we just heard, has had an incredible life journey. He started off as a bit of a rough guy because he had to be in the tough orphanage where he grew up in. But when God's love pierced his rough exterior, it all began to change and he wound up living an incredibly fulfilling life and having a very fruitful ministry, one that, as he just shared, he has no regrets about. Well, how about you? Would you like God to deeply touch your heart as well? Would you like your life to change like Michael's did? We would love to pray with you about this on 1-800-PRAY-FOR-ME. That's our prayer line, 1-800-772-936. Again, 1-800-772-936. Well, thanks for joining us for Pastor Michael's story. I'm Jimmy Colfax, encouraging you to share your story with someone today. Next time on The Story. You know, I was doing meth off and on for uh, about 10 years. And even like a three-day or like a weekend use, you would sleep for like hard for a week or something. So imagine two years. That's like three weeks just like sick and down. And so it was a complete miracle that I was up and walking around in three days. Brian Welch reached the heights of rock and roll stardom as a member of the heavy metal band named Korn. But after his life began to fall apart... He gave it all up when he became a Christian. Several years later, he was surprised to find out that God was now leading him to rejoin his old band, Corn. We'll find out why next time. The Story. Just another way vision is connecting faith to life. 